The following sermon was preached at Tower View Baptist Church. We are a gospel-centered, relationship-driven church that exists to know, grow in, share, and serve Jesus Christ. We do all this for the glory of God. For more about us, please check out our website at www.towerviewkc.com. Ahead, you're probably wondering, how in the world is this going to go down? So if you have not read it, we're going to read it in just a minute. But today's title is a play on words from Romans chapter 8, Pastor Nelson. If God is against us, who can be for us? If God is against us, who can be for us? Because you know what? You kind of feel that way when you get one of these things on your phone. Amy will throw this up here. Uh, you kind of feel like, who can be f- uh, for me when all the robocalls are against me, right? And that how you feel sometimes? How many of y'all get those phone calls on your thing? Like people call you from across the nation and they say, you know, man, uh, you, you owe the IRS like $2 million. You're like, I haven't even made $2 million in my life. How do I owe them that much money? And you figure all this stuff out. Uh, and robocalls are everywhere. Because if you're like me, they tell you not to answer the phone. And when you're actually trying to do something on your phone and you can't click decline because then they know you're actually live on that number and they'll start calling back again and again and again and again. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Y'all are acting like it never happens. And do you remember that do not call list from like 20 years ago? You called the FCC, like put me on the do- Yeah, that doesn't work either. Actually, robocalls are so crazy right now that I want to get this number correct, that last April alone, 4.9, they just recorded one month, the FCC did 4.9 billion robocalls. Those calls that no one wants to get from random numbers uh, went out. That's an average of 15 calls per person per month per American if you have a cell phone. Oh, isn't it great to live in America these days? Robocalls are persistent, they're unwanted, no one cares for them, they mimic your number, and they really, uh, it's fun. You know, here, if you really want to have fun with a robocall, answer it and say, uh, this is the Jesus hotline, how may I help you? And there's silence, and you say, yes, this is the Jesus hotline, how may I help you? And then you look for opportunities to share the gospel. I'm serious, try it. I had a friend on Facebook do this, he recorded it, it's a ton of fun. Because first off, you get to share the gospel, and second, they have no idea what to say because it's not in their script. So it's a lot of fun if you want to push back in a spiritual good way that way. Well, I can tell you that the Israelites did not have cell phones, but I can almost guarantee you that these warnings from the book of Ezekiel were like many people feel about robocalls today. They were getting warning after warning after warning after warning after warning. The Israelites were... And God sent them prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet, and they would just act like nothing ever happened. They wanted nothing to do with it. These were, they thought, God's robocalls, that they wanted to decline to answer the phone because they knew if they answered the phone, they wouldn't like what they heard on the other end. But one thing that this book of Ezekiel tells us is that actions have consequences, don't they? They have consequences. If I step out on 435 and say, I don't believe that big truck's going to hit me, well, uh, that big truck's going to hit me whether I believe it or not, isn't it? But these people didn't want to hear from God. They didn't want those persistent calls coming again and again and again. But unlike the robocalls, the messages that God was sending was for their health, was for their good, was for their building up and for their spiritual direction. 
And they say that you can sow wild oats and pray for crop failure, but sins have actions, or actions have sins with them that have consequences. And Ezekiel has been told to say this one message, thus says the Lord. Hosea 8, 7, not a passage we go to, but Amy will put it up, says this, for they have sown, speaking of Israel, for the Israelites have sown the wind and they shall reap a whirlwind. It's kind of like when you have parents say, oh, you've tried me now, try me again and see what happens. These Israelites have gotten to the point where they have presumed upon God's grace. They've sown the wind of fools, and now they're reaping the hurricane, the whirlwind of God's judgment. Why? Because you reap what you sow. But let me be very clear. We are not Hindus, are we? We don't have millions of gods in our sanctuary. We do not believe in karma, guys. This is not what goes around comes around. That if, if, if I kick a turtle, I'm going to become a fish in the next life. That's not how this life works. We believe that people have actions that they do that cause sin, and that sin has a repercussion, a repercussion as it is. The wicked will reap what they sow more than they sow and later than they thought they should sow because actions have consequences. That is the message of Ezekiel and especially chapter 5. God's judgment is coming soon. But remember, it's been over 400 years since God has told them to stop doing these things. 400 years. And Galatians 6, 7, Paul says that God is not mocked. You reap what you sow. So friends today, what do God's judgments look like? Can God really be against us instead of for us? And why does God always save just a small group of people out of the masses? We'll talk through that. And I want to just give you that big idea today. If you're visiting with us, this big idea, it's kind of like the summary rifle shot thesis, is that God has always worked through a small group. He desires quality, not quantity, depth, and not breadth. And this may be a needed message for you today. I don't want to presume to know. I know many of you well. have been here five years, and Judy, we don't want to miss that Judy, our secretary, has been here five years as of yesterday. Thank you, Judy, for five years of faithful service, as you do. But as we get to know each other, I don't want to presume to think just because we come together that you're not fighting some sin in your life. You're not fighting some temptation in your life. Christian, as simple as it may seem today, your actions have consequences for you, your family, your church, and everything else. Well, duh, Darren, I could have stayed home and watched a million hours of pregame before the big game and, and done all that stuff. Nah, you're glad you're here. Well, God will cover me. He loves me. Yes, he does. But God holds people to strict accountability to his word, does he not? Actions have consequences. But I want you to see that despite these consequences, that God reminds us of three ways that he uses the small group of people, despite all the bad stuff that happens, despite all the things that happen because of our consequences, God does three things through uh, saving a small group while judging the rest. I want you to see three things this morning. First, that we're going to see a copy of God's judgment. Uh, Ezekiel is going to whip out a sword, and he's going to start to shave himself, okay? Uh, are you ready for that? Uh, so uh, someone pointed out, I think it was Richard Ream, if he's in here, Richard pointed out we should do this on Steve Braden because he didn't have much hair anyway. So uh, it works out that we could get a little bit more. We'll get there. Second thing we're going to see this morning is not only a copy of God's judgment, we're going to see the cause of God's judgment. Why would God use these consequences on these people? What did he, they do to him to make him so mad? And finally, the third one we'll see, not only the copy or the cause, we're going to see the character of God's judgment. God, I mean, can't you just tone it down a bit? I mean, come on, God. 
I mean, you love these people, right? Why are you so harsh on them? Just tone it down. Just it's, it's okay. Simmer down, God. Well, that's what Israel would like, but God has other plans. Will you join me in standing this morning? We're going to read 19 verses together. If you're able to do that, by the Lord's grace, we'll do it as we stand in honor of God's word this morning. Ezekiel chapter 5. If God be against us, who can be for us? How he saves a small group of people and the consequential actions of the masses. Here's what the word of the Lord says. God speaking to Ezekiel. And you, son of man, take a sharp sword. Use it as a barber's razor and pass it over your head and your beard. Then take the balances for weighing and divide the hair. A third part, verse 2, you shall burn in the fire in the midst of the city when the days of the siege are completed. And the third part, you shall take and strike with the sword all around the city. And a third part, you shall scatter to the wind, and I will unsheath the sword after them. Verse 3, and you shall take from these a small number and bind them in the skirts of your robe. And of these you shall take them and some of them and cast them into the midst of the fire and burn them in the fire. From there a fire will come out of the house of Israel. Verse 5, thus says the Lord God, this is Jerusalem. I have set her in the center of the nations with countries all around her. And she has rebelled against my rules by doing wickedness more than the other nations and against my statutes more than the countries all around her. For they have rejected my rules and not walked in my statutes. Verse 7. Therefore says the Lord God, because you are more turbulent from the, than the nations that are around you, and have not walked in my statutes, obeyed my rules, and not even acted according to the rules of the nations that are all around you. That's one sentence, by the way. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, verse 8, Behold, I, even I, am against you, and I will execute judgment on you, and I will execute judgments in your midst in the sight of the nations. Verse 9, And because of your abominations, I will do with you what I have not ever yet done, and the like of which I will never do again. Therefore, fathers shall eat their sons in your midst, and your sons shall eat their fathers, and I will execute judgment on you. And any of you who survive, I'll scatter to the winds. Verse 11, Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord God, surely because you've defiled my sanctuary with all your detestable things, with all your abominations, therefore I will withdraw. My eye will not spare, and I will have no pity. A third part of you shall die of pestilence and be consumed with famine in your midst, and a third part shall be uh, fall by the sword all around, and a third I will scatter to the winds, and I'll unsheath the sword after them. Verse 13, Thus shall my anger spend itself. I will vent my fury upon them, and they shall satisfy myself, and they shall know that I am the Lord God, that I have spoken in my jealousy when I spend my fury upon them. Moreover, I, verse 14, will make you a desolation, an object of reproach among the nations all around you and in the sight of all who pass by. You shall be a reproach and a taunt and a warning and a horror to the nations around you when I execute judgment on you in anger and fury and with furious rebukes. I am the Lord. I have spoken. Verse 16, when I send against you the deadly arrows of famine, arrows for destruction, which I will send to destroy you, and when I bring more and more famine upon you and break the supply of bread, verse 17, I will send famine and wild beasts against you, and they shall rob you of your children. Pestilence and blood shall pass through you, and I will bring the sword upon you. I am the Lord. I have spoken. Oh, wouldn't you have loved to be Ezekiel and have to deliver this message to such a group of people? Guys, this is heavy stuff, and it's kind of weird stuff at the end. Weird not because God is weird. It is all foolishness. It's weird only because these people have caused God to get to this point.
We'll get there, but I want you to know where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Guys, this is us, but in Jesus Christ, we have been completely forgiven. Amen. May God be glorified. Let's pray today as we start. Fathers, we come before you reading a chapter that just makes our skin crawl like nails on a chalkboard to our souls. Because, Father, it's, it's, it's raw, it's real. It speaks to not only the past, but if we're honest, it speaks to every one of us outside of Jesus Christ and perhaps, Lord, even our cultures around the world today indeed because we have done these things. But, Father, I thank you for those of us who call upon the name of the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, the name above all names, at which every knee shall bow and every tongue confess, whether under the earth or above the earth. We also confess, Lord, that it's all by his grace that we stand. Father, the book should be thrown at us, and it was upon your Son. But we thank you that through him, by him, to him, and in him, we have forgiveness of sins. Fathers, we talk about this, that your character has not changed, the cause of the judgment has not changed, and the copy of your judgment that's coming will not change. May we see Jesus high and lifted up. We pray these things today in his name, in Jesus' name, and God's people said, amen. Guys, you may be seated. Thank you. Well, uh, Judy, our, our, our office manager, Judy, asked me, she read, uh, Judy, you know, Judy and I have worked together for five years. We've shared a lot of ups and downs and tears through church life as it is. And Judy looked at me, I think it was Monday, Judy, and said, how are you going to preach this one? Well, this is why you pray, because guys, this is a tough passage tough because it's so real, it's so raw. And we have seen, as before we get there, we have seen in chapter 1, Ezekiel, he had a vision. God gave him a vision of who he was and how he works in the world. In chapter 2, God gave him an audience. He said, go to Israel and tell them what I tell you. In chapter 3, he sent out Ezekiel specifically and told them, these people are not going to listen to you, but you go anyway. Mission impossible. And then last week, we saw Ezekiel do some weird things, didn't we? He played with models, he cooked over uh, dung, and he ate things that made him suffer, and, he tie- and God tied him up. He laid on his right side, he laid on his left side. Could it get any crazier? But now in chapter 5, God, in serving him in unusual ways, is a picture of God's judgment to come. So I want to do the first one, the copy of God's judgment this morning, copy of God's judgment. You notice there in verse 1, and that title we've talked about in verse 1, As for you, Son of Man. Just a reminder to you, we'll do this almost every week, this is a title by God given to Ezekiel to remind him who he is, to remind him to be humble, that he's not God. But then he tells him to take a sharp sword. I do not have a sword up here. My son is sick at home, so I didn't want to bring any germs more than I probably have to you. But he takes a sword. Now, this is not your Gillette razor, okay? This is not your, uh, your zzz, you know, your electric razor. This is a sword. Does that make sense? The, Diana, this is Renaissance a, a festival, like on steroids approved kind of thing. This thing's sharp. This sword, and the word for sword here, is a weapon of war. It's a picture of what is coming to Jerusalem. But he tells him, take a sword and use it as a barber's razor on your head and on your beard. Okay, God, I'm going to do that. And remember, Ezekiel is called to do this in public. So Ezekiel's not just in his bathroom with a little puffy cream on his face, you know, back in the day. He's in the public square doing the most shameful thing a man and a priest, as he is, could do. He's cutting off his hair. He's cutting off his beard. Now, I don't know about you. They didn't have Band-Aids back then. I would have little splotches all over my, so I cannot even imagine the scene. 
This is a hairy guy because they never cut their hair. If you remember Samson, it was against the, the priestly vows, and Samson was a Nazarite. This is a Levite in Ezekiel, but the same is there. It was to show that the house of Judah, Jerusalem, was going to be taken down. He, it was a serious matter. His hair was a sign of dedication to the Lord. But now he was going to be humiliated just as Jerusalem was going to be humiliated. And Isaiah 7.20, and we won't go there, says that the Lord will shave Israel with a razor. But not only to shave it, but look at verse 1. He tells them to take the hair and weigh it and balance it. Now, when I go to the barber, or my wife, who is my barber, we don't balance out the hair. We just take out the, you know, the broom and put it in and throw it away. That's not what he does here. He's weighing as a sign of judgment. You know, whether you like our legal system or not, we have a picture of a blind lady, or blind, excuse me, not a blind lady, picture who's blindfolded, and, and she's holding two scales in our justice system, doesn't she? The, the right and wrong, the guilty or innocent. And so too here, Ezekiel is to take the hair he just cut off and weigh it and divide it out again in front of people. Now just stop for a second. Imagine you're on the plaza or in Westport or at Zona Rosa or the Legends or wherever you're going, and there's a guy, and he takes out a sword. That might be a 911 call enough right there, right? But not only that, he starts shaving off his head. And he starts putting it before him, and he starts balancing it out and cutting it out into thirds. What would you think? He's a little crazy. He's a little off his rocker. He's a little delusional, perhaps. So, guys, I want to just remind you here. When Ezekiel is put in front of the people to do this stuff, the message could not be clear. Guys, Israelites, this is you all. This is you all. So he takes it and he weighs it out. But God's own people were not beyond the judgment of God himself. Isn't it 1 Peter 4.19 that tells us that, that judgment should come and start with the household of God? God's people do not get a pass in judgment someday. And Christian, let me remind you too, secure in Christ you are. You will stand before God in judgment someday for every, uh, well, Jesus told us. For every loose word that you said, for every thought that you've given, for every action you've done, you stand in judgment before the Lord forgiven as you are. And that's the good news, isn't it? But we will stand before the Lord someday in judgment and give account for everything that we have. I'm going to take another aside. This is why as your pastors here, we take membership so seriously. Because we take membership seriously because if you're a member here, we have to stand before God for every name on our church roll. Oh, joy. We love you. But guys, that's a lot of work. So when Ezekiel does this, it's weighty, not just in the weight of the hair, but in the implications that it brings. So go to verse 2. He tells you what he does next. So he brings it before, and he takes one-third. He, he does three one-thirds. That makes a whole, right, or something like that, 33% math people. Some of you all answered the question on Facebook what you wanted to be, what your favorite topic was, and three of you put math. So I hope that's right. A third, a third, and a third. Verse 2 says, a third is burned in the fire of the city. The sinner, not in Babylon where Ezekiel's at, but in Jerusalem. Well, he tells you there in verse 12, that in, and we read that, that a third of them are going to die by the plague. They're going to die by famine. He says in verse 12 how this will be uh, jotted down. But when, when Babylon was there, they surrounded the city. And as they surrounded the city, they cut off all food and all water and all supply. And so desperate were the people that fathers would eat sons and sons would eat fathers. We'll get there in a minute. 
It's a hard message. That's one-third are going to burn the fire in the city center. Another third, he says in verse 2 of the hair, as an example, as an imagery, is going to be struck with the sword all around. They're literally going to be put to death by the sword. Cannot imagine the scene, but a third of them are going to die physically with the sword. But then notice that last third of verse 2. He says, the last third you shall scatter to the wind. Now, again, I want you to picture this, guys. This, don't, I mean, the Bible's real, but he's weighing all these things out, and he's just going to take some and throw it to the wind. What is he talking about? Well, what he's talking about is, is that a third of them are going to go out away from there and are going to be uh, back to Babylon or are going to be captives of other armies. So a third are going to die of famine, a third are going to die by the sword, and a third are going to be held prisoner somewhere else. But notice verse 3. There is a glimmer of hope. Did you see that? Verse 3 tells us in chapter 5, it says, And you shall take, talking to Ezekiel, from these small hairs a number and bind them in the skirts of your robe. I'm going to be honest with you. I tried this at home. And it fell all to the floor. Took some shave, you know, some shave cuttings and tried to do it. It didn't work out too well. But my shirt did not have anything to their robes. They had little pockets in, the, in their robes that were cut there. And so Ezekiel was to put them in there. So what is this? Take a few. What is this? The robe would have been long robe that men wore, and it was held up by a sash. And the bottom of the robe would have been like a kangaroo pouch where it was a pocket of sorts. And so he's taking the shave, and he's putting it down there. And it's a picture that God is going to save a third of the people. Guys, this is why I want to remind you that God is not going to save everyone in this world. We are not universalists. We do not believe that every single person is going to go to heaven. Don't you love that old song? Um, oh, I just lost it in my head. When we all get to heaven. If you're, if you're not careful with that, that can become a, a try. We, we just march down to Unity Village right now. Folks, we're not all going to get to heaven. In fact, Jesus said that the road is what to destruction? It is broad. But narrow is the way to life. So he takes his third and he puts it in his pocket, and that's a sign that God is going to take care of by his gracious choice that will not turn away from him a group of people that will follow him no matter what. We call those the elect. We call those the chosen. We call those the predestined, and that's a whole other sermon. But God has always had a remnant of people that will always be his people. In verse 4, he gets a little bit deeper. He goes to verse 4. He says, take them take what? Take some more of the shaving, and these again you shall cast into the fire and burn them, and from there a fire will come out all to the house of Israel. After most die in Babylon, the future of Israel will be purified through a small group of people. The future of the nation belong to a small remnant of people. Amy, you can go ahead and put this up. Guys, I just want to tell you as we look at this copy of God's judgment that God is always working through the minority. Now, I want to be clear here, and I've said this again. This is We're not against big churches. Some pastor, a pastor said, I'm glad I get to pastor a small church and not a big church because we have less problems than the big church. Oh, yeah. How's that worked out for you? It's kind of like the family that says, I'm just going to have one kid, and I won't have as many problems as the family with 20 kids, right? Friends, it doesn't matter the size of the church or the size of the believer, the size of the fellowship, what matters is, is that God is often working through the minority. Isn't that true in your life as well? God often works in your weakest times. He doesn't work in your strongest times. God often works in your moments of least resourcefulness instead of your biggest resourcefulness. So as a church, I want to remind us, we want to see every seat in this sanctuary full, don't we? 
We want to see people from the neighborhood. We want to see friends. We want to see family members. We want to see coworkers come to Jesus or even just visit and say, come see what God is doing at Tower View Baptist Church. But we also have to remember that the message is so deeply ingrained in us that we believe it, that those folks out there won't always believe it. God will work through the minority. Some of the greatest messages of that are true. How many people were saved in the ark? Eight. How many people died in the, in the mass flood that came? Everyone else but those eight. God works through the minority. And what Ezekiel is being told here is, look, everyone is going to die, but I'm going to save a group of people, and these group of people are going to be the people to carry the message forward. Christianity is never going to be popular in America again unless God does a miraculous work in this nation. Do you, do you see that? I don't care what we've done in the past, guys. This culture is, is long since gone from the statutes and word of God. The only way this culture turns is if God turns our hearts to go out, share the gospel, and make that change by his grace and his spirit. But God always works through the minority. That's why I'm excited to be a Southern Baptist. Can I, can I play my Southern Baptist card for a second? Do you realize our church is the same percentage of churches? That, brother, I think it's about 80%. Uh, looking around at the guys, about 80% of churches are our size in the Southern Baptist Convention. Churches just like us. The average size church in America is about 100 people. We're about a church about 100, 115 on a good day. But God works through people like us. Don't give up. But I want you to remember also, and Amy, you can throw this next one up if you will. God not only uses a minority, but no church can ever rise higher than the preaching that it has. Ezekiel was tasked with one thing, go out and tell them the message. I don't care if they don't listen to you. I don't care if it's not popular. You get out and you pray. You pray for the message of this church to go forward through you, through the preaching, through the teaching, through whatever we've got, because as we do that, God will use it. How do you build a church? You build it two ways, and they're supernatural. You build it by the preaching of the word and by the prayers of God's people. That's how you build a church. You don't build a church on programs. You don't build a church on professionals. You build a church by the preaching and prayers of the people. It is supernatural. Because if I can build it, it can be torn down. I am sure, I, I said I was done with references, but here you go. I'm sure if I could throw a football like Patrick Mahomes, that we could win a few Super Bowls and all that sort of thing, right? But I can't do that. So I'm not even going to try. I'd, I'd die the first time they tackled me because I would just pass out and be bone crushed as it was. 300 pounds. I can't do it. Patrick Mahomes can't even do it, guys. Put it that way. We, even with his ketchup and his pizza hut, he can't do it. But God can. Friends, you pray through our minority church. Not, I'm not talking racially. I'm talking Christian focus. That as we come together as believers, that we remember this culture is never going to be right unless we take up arms and say, I don't care how many we got. Our God is bigger than everything they got and we will see change. You may be the only Christian in your family. You may be the only one in your family that knows Jesus Christ. Your whole family may come to know Jesus Christ because you and the minority are willing to stand up to say, I'm about Jesus. I love him. I want you to know him too. Don't ever give up on that. All right. Copy of God's judgment. Let's go to the next thing. Not only the copy of God's judgment, I want you to see what happens here in the second part, the cause of God's judgment. Did you notice this in verses 5 and 6? He tells us why this is coming. We see not only is God going to bring the judgment, it's not without cause, but look at verse 5 as we truck through this. He says, thus says the Lord, this is Jerusalem. So this whole example, this whole thing of shaving the head is a, is a picture of Jerusalem. 
And he tells him, this is Jerusalem. I have set her in the center of all the nations with countries all around here. But I want you to notice that first thing. Notice what is first said. Thus says the Lord. This is the holy city. The judgment is coming. God has put this at the center of the known universe at this point. This is it. And to set up the sins that would be specific next, he says, remember your position. Remember how much privilege you have been given. Remember where I have brought you. And he says, I've set her at the center of the nations with lands all around her. Why do Jews and Muslims and Christians, to some degree more Jews and Muslims at this point, still fight over Jerusalem? Because God has always seen it as a holy city. We know that even in Revelation, whether you're a left-behind series theological guy or you're not sure what's going to happen uh, at all during that time in Revelation, all of us agree on this one thing. Jerusalem's a pretty popular place. And at some point, God is going to use it to bring back his kingdom. And so he tells them that this is the place I have set out to be the, the witness to the nations, but now it's the whoring of the nations that come from here. I mean, think about it. Jerusalem is close to Europe. It's close to Africa. It's close to Asia. God has given them his word. He's given them the Ten Commandments. And yet, he's not spoken to any other nation. He's chosen them, Deuteronomy 7, not because they were bigger or stronger, but because he loved them. He set his gaze upon them. And he said, I put you in the middle. They've been blessed. They've been abundantly blessed. They've been given everything they need. They were supposed to be a light, a missionary light to all the other people. Just like, you remember the story in Solomon's day when Queen Sheba came? Do you remember the story? Queen Sheba came out from what we know as probably United Arab Emirates, like way south on the peninsula of Saudi Arabia and all that. And she comes up and she literally passes out because of the glory of the temple of the Lord. You remember that story? And Solomon was supposed to be a witness to the nations, but Solomon became a slave of the nations. Do you remember that? The Bible says the women got his eye, and that, that's exactly what it was. So he tells them, the cause of this reason that I'm bringing judgment is because you were supposed to be the apple of my eye, but that's not what happened. Look at verse 6. He gets more specific. He tells them, and, and she has rebelled, Jerusalem has rebelled against my rules, doing wickedness more than the nations, more than the statutes, than the countries around her, for they've rejected my rules and not walked in my ways. She not only rebelled, but she did worse than those who rebelled. Guys, is a sin, a sin, a sin? You ever thought about that? Is a sin, a sin, a sin, and a sin? I don't think you can argue that it is. God himself tells us here that they have rebelled more and more and more wicked ways than those other people. Yes, murder and yes, even lying are equal. They both separate us from God. But there's a sense in which Israel's getting the second heat from the fire of God's wrath and judgment simply because of the acts that they have done. To whom much is given, much is required. And this is the great sin that they had. They had everything they needed. They had more silver and gold, more honey, spiritually speaking. They had it all, and God said, you blew it. You absolutely blew it, guys, and I'm coming after you because of it. Friends, and this is why I want to just say, look, I, I, I love statistics. I love strategies we can implement in the church, but I just want to give a base reminder to us this morning as we speak to our generation. The task, and Amy can put this up, the chief biblical task facing the church today is not to reinvent or to be relevant. It is to remember. I want you to just chew on that for a second. 
when people say to you, we are reinventing church, you should have red lights like going off all over the place, shouldn't you? That's like someone coming, I, I don't even know, uh, silly examples, but that's, think of something that's so routine and someone coming to you and saying, that's not right, here's the better way. You're usually going to say, huh? It doesn't mean we shouldn't change you know, music occasionally or things like that. But at its base, what Ezekiel is telling these people through the word of the Lord is that you guys have taken what I've given you and you've twisted it up so much to make it what you want it to be. It no longer looks like who I am or what I've required it to be. Well, we would never do that in any church, would we, Pastor? Friends, we need to be very, very careful. Our job is not to reinvent the message. Our job is not to make the message relevant. When is Jesus Christ not relevant, right? Jesus is always relevant. Our job is to remember. Remember what? Our job is to remember that he saved us. Our job is to remember that he loved us. Our job is to remember we were once far off over there, but he's brought us close by the blood of Christ. Our job is not to play God. Our job is to remember that he's God. We are simply his messengers and leave it there. And be okay with that. Well, Darren, what, you know, but, but Darren, the newest church strategy, oh, Darren, you got to get this new church strategy. You know, if we just do this, the people will come. Mm-hmm. That's great. And how much does it cost? It can be yours for $19.95 if you make four easy payments on your credit card today. <laughs> Friends, we don't need to reinvent church. Look, let me be very clear. Does this mean we can't, like, change the light bulbs or change the set design? No, that's, I don't think that's what we're talking about. But what they had done so much is they had taken God's rules, they'd thrown it in the pot, then they took a little of their seasoning here, a little of their seasoning there, and they mixed it all together, and they fed it out to the people and said, here, here's what God wants you to do. May we seek to reach people where they are. But may we not seek to reach people where they are to the point that God's word is cut out of the process. Does that make sense? Hope that is clear. He said, I'm coming to you. Friends, and don't think that every church today is not under the same microscope. We must remember the faith once for all delivered to the saints. We must remember that it is sin against God that weighs against his people. We must also remember that God's word is not full of opinions, suggestions, or hopeful pithy statements. It's God's word. And so as we do that, we will see him come. All right. I want you to see not only the copy of God's judgment, the cause, but I want you to see how God is saving the small group of people, uh, even despite the actions of others, through the character of God's judgment. And this is where I want to just give you some bullet points. It's so hard to summarize. Just going to put up about, uh, well, about 10 little bullet points as we walk verse by verse through this. Look at verse 7. He says, because, God gives you the reason. He says, because... Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you are more turbulent than the nations around you and you've not walked in my statutes, obeyed my rules, have not acted according to the rules uh, of the nations that are all around you. I want you to see very first off that this is a very public demonstration of God's judgment. They have literally sinned so much that every other nation knows about it. This is why, and I, I, I feel like I harp on this a lot, but it's so true. This is why when sin runs rampant in the church, we don't let it go unchecked. Do you see that? I've read a message board this week of a pastor who is two weeks into his pastor. And it's a conference call, and Judy knows I take this every Thursday at 1 o'clock. 
uh, the guy shared that he had been in his church two weeks, two weeks, and a guy divorced his wife, submitted the divorce papers. He immediately started taking up residence in the fellowship hall and started teaching a Bible study about why his actions were correct, all under the nose and the guise and the watchful eye of everyone in that church. But do you know what happened in those two weeks? People did this. Well, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, I don't, that's, that's, his, that's his business. Guys, when God's holiness is at stake, it becomes everybody's business, doesn't it? And when Ezekiel is told here that this is going to happen because they have already made it public, the judgment is going to come. Look, in matters of church discipline, it's confidential, it's personal, but there's also a time to bring it before the church. And in this sense, you're seeing in Matthew 18, or in Ezekiel 5, what's happening in Matthew 18. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Look at verse 8. He tells you, behold, therefore thus, I am against you. I am against you. Can God be against his own people? Can this really be the case? God is not only our hope, but he's also our biggest threat. He is going to execute judgment on them. It's very public. It's not small or unknown. But he will be open and public, and the watching eyes of the world are on the nations. Look, if you're a Christian here today, can God ever be against you? What do you think? No, he cannot. Isn't that good news? God can never be against you if you're a Christian. Never. Why? Because he's not two-faced. He's not double lying. He doesn't tell you one thing and do another. God has said in Romans chapter 8, if he is for us, what? Who can be against us? But if you're not a Christian, like these Israelites were not believers, they were religious, they played the routine, they went through the motions, God is absolutely against you. Your biggest threat, if you're not a Christian, is not your sin, it is God himself. Who is going to be judging unbelievers in hell forever? It is God himself. Not little pokey, uh, uh, you know, uh, little devils with uh, sticks that, uh, that the Middle Ages got in our minds. It is God himself. And look at verse 9. It's totally justified. Look at verse 9. He tells him why it's justified. He says, and because of your abominations, God has every reason to do this. You know, one of the greatest complaints against Christianity that you hear today is, if God loves me so much, why is he judging me for my sin? Why can't he just let me be? God, just leave me alone. Leave me alone. Come on. Just leave me alone. I mean, you do your thing, God. I'll do my thing, God. Your truth is relevant. My truth is relevant. Can't we all just hold hands and sing kumbaya around the fire and kumbaya? That's not our God. When people stand before the Lord on Judgment Day, they're not standing there because God has a, a mean streak. He has to get out of his system. You know, like some of y'all... Uh, if you're like, I go run 20 miles or whatever it is, some of y'all have a punching bag in the basement. Nelson encourage, I've heard Nelson encourage people to do is get your anger out a little bit in the punching bag, I think. Yeah, maybe. God doesn't have a mean streak where he's trying to let loose his anger on people because he's had a bad day. He's fully justified in doing it. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all have fallen short. He tells him, it's not because of me, it's because of you, it's justified. Notice thirdly, this, uh, the uh, second part of verse 9, this is a severe judgment. He says, it's so severe that, verse 9, that I will never do it, I've never yet done it, and I'll never do it again. 
Well, Darren, isn't the isn't the the judgment of all you know all things going to be terrible? It absolutely is in the last day. But specific to Israel, he'll never do this again. This is not just a slap on the wrist. This is something that happens. Not only is it severe. Notice verse ten. It's horrific. I don't think I need to spell this out for you. Therefore, fathers shall eat their sons in your midst, and sh- sons shall eat their fathers. I'm just going to give you a couple references. You can look up Deuteronomy 26. You can look up Lamentations 4. I'm actually going to read that for you here. Here are Lamentations 4. Just, just listen for a second. Her princes were purer than snow, whiter than milk. Their bodies were ruddier than coral. Their beauty of their form was like a sapphire. But now their face is blacker than soot. They are not recognized in the streets. Their skin has shriveled on their bones. It has become as dry as wood. Happier were the victims of the sword than victims of hunger, who wasted away like fruits in the field. Lamentations 4.10. The hands of compassionate women have boiled their own children. They became their food during the destruction of the daughter of my people. It's horrific. Cannibalism has literally come to the steps of Israel because they have fallen against the grace of God. It's better to die by the sword because the kids became food for them because of their behavior. Guys, I cannot imagine, not imagine. You hear stories, you know, there's whaling, uh, the ship that uh, the story Moby Dick is based on. Uh, you can read on the history of that, the, the whaling town out of Maine that they went on, you know, the, uh, an actual whale hit that ship and the men resorted to this type of food to stay alive. You know, there's stories of the Dahmer family. You know, you can run the list. It's, it's horrific. It's not something you'd have a conversation about. But when you are so much in your sin, there are consequences for that. Would you pray that our nation would see that sin is not just a slap on the wrist. It's a horrific offense to God himself. Look at verse 11. He says not only is this horrific, but it's also irreversible. Look at verse 11. He says, there's, there's no back turning now. He tells them, and my eye will not spare, and I will have no pity. My eye will not spare, and I will have no pity. So I declare the Lord. They have gone to the point where it's that thing. It's kind of like God in a courtroom of law puts his hand on the Bible. Do we still, do, Brother Dave, do we still put our hands on the Bible in court of law today? Is that right? Okay. Didn't know if that still was a thing. And, and they put their hand on the Bible and they say, God, we're going to follow you. And they go up on the witness stand and just lie, 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 lie. It's irreversible. Their sin has caught them out. And they've defiled, it says in verse 11, they defiled my sanctuary with idols. They became a three-ring circus. Four more to go, guys. Verse 12, it's fatal. Did you notice verse 12? He says, a third part of you shall die for your pestilence and be consumed with the famine, and a third will be scattered to the wind. Uh, Two-thirds are going to die. Two-thirds are not going to live. He's only going to save a small part. It's kind of like a nice and sapphire in Acts 5. God struck them down. But notice verse 7, and this may be, tr- or excuse me, verse 13. This may trouble some of you, but it's not only fatal, but notice verse 13, what God says about himself. Thus shall my anger spend itself, and I will vent my fury upon them and satisfy myself. Pastor, can can God really get a joyful response out of judging people in this kind of way? The word here is very... It's, it's unclear in some phrases what it is. If you talk to one of our Hebrew guys at Midwestern, just to get some clarity on this, and it's very unclear, but the point of it is this. God has full 
God has full right and reign to release his anger, and so he will. Parents, just as you, in, in a very earthly imagery sense, have the full right and reign as authorities of your homes, moms and dads, to punish your children in, in a godly way, so God has seen fit to release this, and he is satisfied. Once this is done, you want to connect this? Do you remember on the cross? Is this not a picture of Jesus Christ? When on that cross, what did Jesus say? It is finished. God poured out his wrath. His wrath was satisfied on Jesus, and he tells Jerusalem, when I do this, I will relent, but it has to happen first. Aren't you glad that God didn't spare any wrath on Jesus, but he poured it out, and he didn't save any for his people? Because if you're a Christian, he's always with you. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you, even when all this crazy stuff goes down. Come hell or high water, God is with us. Amen? What a God we have. It's not only satisfying, but I want you to see, it, it, it's also, and this is a, I, I could not think of a better word for this, but it's debasing. Look at verse 14. Verse 14, debasing means it's just, it, it's kind of horrific, it's just, it's, it's humiliating. And he says in verse 14, he says, Moreover, I will make you a desolation, an object of reproach among the nations for all who pass by. In other words, you're, they're going to look at you and say, how could you do that? It's kind of like when you see on the news a rich kid who has everything he could ever need, and he goes out and does something completely dumb, and you think you just had it all. What are you doing? Or when you see, I, you know, growing up in a small town, we had people, we had local sports heroes. One of, several, probably 30 years ago now, a guy went to Boston College from Plattsburgh, Missouri. That was a big thing, you know, go to Boston College to play football from Plattsburgh. You know, he got into stuff, and he blew out his career because he thought that the stuff that they do on the weekends was more important than his priority to play football and earn the scholarship and get that degree. And everyone at home just shook their head. You all know what I'm talking about. Israel, how could you do this? What were you thinking when you disobeyed God this way? Number nine. There was a warning given. He tells him in, in verse 15, he says, not only are you going to be a reproach, but you shall be a reproach, a taunt, a warning, and a horror to the nations around you. When I execute judgments, I am the Lord. In other words, if this can happen to my people, nations, hold on, this can happen to all people. And finally, it's terrifying, and I'm not going to read all those verses, but it is terrifying. God is going to send deadly arrows. He's going to send all these things upon his people. Because of their sin. Okay, Pastor, what's the good news? J E S U S. Because, guys, this is us. This is us. We are these people. We are these people. We are supposed to have this given to us. But Jesus, in his great love, stepped down, and on that cross, he took everything we deserve. Praise the Lord. If God is against you, who can be for you? Nobody. But if you're a Christian, he is for you, and you don't have to go through this. Amen? It ought to soften our hearts for people who don't know Jesus. Because this is their fate, eternally speaking. It's horrific. If the bowels of hell don't keep you up at night, you ought to pray they do.
Because, guys, someday Jesus is going to return. And someday those without Jesus will face this. And God is fully justified. He's warned them. He's told them. It's coming. And when that day comes and that knock on the door, so to speak, happens, that's it. There's no second chance. There's no I slept at a holiday inn. There's no I'm a, it's so easy a caveman can do it. It is all, did you know Jesus or do you not? That's why I challenge you. Look, go have fun. Enjoy the game tonight. I really hope we win. I mean that in all seriousness. But would you pray, too, that somehow through, through the fun that you may have with people being silly and watching a, a game that won't matter past tomorrow anyway, as great as fun as it will be, would you pray somehow through all that that God may give you an opportunity to share the gospel with someone? Because right now in Kansas City, the biggest thing is a football game. But as Christians, the bigger thing is yet to come. It's a celebration. We get to go home. We had a brother pass in the celebration this week who, who knew Jesus and lived a life to glorify Jesus. Mr. Amy, we're praying for you. But guys, have fun at the game. But you never know. Would you pray if you're going to a party tonight? Lord, you know what? I don't know how and I don't know who. But maybe tonight someone could hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Super Bowl of, of messages that comes. Go Chiefs. But keep in mind that all this stuff will soon pass away as it does. Will you pray with me as we close? Father God, thank you so much for your word. Father, this message is such a time that we have the reminder as we close today. This is all of our friends and family and neighbors and coworkers and even people we've never met, our missionaries are trying to reach. This is their faith. This is a picture of Jerusalem back in the day, sure, but greater so all of us outside of Christ. Father, for those of us in Jesus Christ, we thank you that the wrath fell on your son. It's satisfied. It's done. It's gone. Thank you so much. Lord, we give you all the praise. We pray in Jesus' name and God's people said, amen. Well, may you stand for God to have his own way inside of us.